Stay tuned for The Lynn Show. Today, I'm airing an interview with the very difficult to describe Glenn Shadow. Glenn is an actor, a director, a writer, a man who is passionate about rhetoric and Shakespeare and teaching and being of support to creative people in every possible way that he can. This is an interesting story of a man who discovers over and over and over again what is right for him and pursues it. So hang on, here come the show. Hearing from an inner voice Finding choice where there's no choice With gentle prodding from the voice Oh, you really can Deeper, deeper down person you really are. Not the person that other people are. Not the person you think you have to be. Not the person somebody told you you had to be, and in some cases told you you were. Not even the person you may currently think you are, but the person you really are. 
Unfortunately, way too many people have experiences in their childhood, either in their family of origin or in a classroom or in a religious or a cultural organization where they get the idea that something about them is not okay. Something they look like, something they think, something they say, something they're curious about, some talent they have. And because being told that something about you is unattractive or incorrect or ugly is too painful, uh, children find ways to pretend that they are not that. I don't think that. I don't want that. I'm not interested in that. And many get so good at the pretense that they come into adulthood having forgotten something really essential about themselves. The Lynn Show is about saying that if this happened to you, it is not too late to get access to who you really are. In my shows, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art, because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be who you really are. And in listening to this interview with Glenn, what you hear is a man who knew from the beginning of his life that he was drawn to theater, uh, was not sure that theater was the right road for him, majored in English, but then had numerous experiences of varying kinds which led him to become a director and to become passionately interested in something that had not ever occurred to him before, and that is dramatic rhetoric and Shakespeare. The delightful thing about listening to Glenn is listening to someone who was willing to evolve, willing to continue to discover more and more and more about himself, about what he was drawn to, about what he loves, about what he wanted to do, and then to pursue it. So here to tell that story is Glenn Shadow. Okay, I'm here with Glenn Shadell. I'm explaining to Glenn that I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. You should tell me how you define yourself as an artist. So my parents were both theater artists growing up. Can you remember the first time you personally were drawn to theater? Apparently my dad um, was in a production of Hamlet when I was about two. And he was at FSU getting his master's degree. And my parents told me that my dad's colleagues and friends would say, bring your kid to our dress rehearsal because if he stays calm, we know the pacing is okay. Right? <laughs> so, so if I didn't cry during the Love of Three Oranges or Hamlet or whatever, then apparently they had a good show. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it was just always a thing that was around. I remember I was in like some goofy like elementary school. I was William Brewster in 1620, the pilgrims arrive, and it was all very much like that. And then I did high school theater, I did college theater. Do you remember the first time you thought, I really want to do this? And I always was interested in it. I think I've always been a rule follower in a lot of ways, and I've always, I'm a little bit more interested in being a, a people pleaser than maybe is healthy. Um, so I did hedge my bets a lot. And I, I went to college knowing that I was going to be an English major, right? Because certainly that's more stable than being a theater major, right? Um, so you're saying that you didn't say to yourself, I want to be in theater. Or you're saying, 
I said to myself, I want to be in theater, but I'd better be careful and have something to fall back on. Which it was one the fallback. Yeah, it was absolutely the fallback plan. And okay, I, so at some point you did say to yourself, mm-hmm. if I can have my druthers, I want to be in theater. I think I wanted to be in the arts, and theater was the art that I had the most exposure to. I so I do eventually get to college, and I'm, I'm an English major. Do you have any idea what you might do with the English major? I thought I would go into publishing. That was an, so ah. sort of being like arts adjacent, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, helping. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of dignity and a lot of honor in maintaining. So many people feel like you have to build, you have to create or something. But being part of that support system, being part of that structure, you know, once once the cathedral is built, who's who sweeps the benches, right? And I think that there's a loveliness to that wow. that I felt even even as a much younger person. So what happens in college? In college I go through three and a half years of being an English major, doing really well in like my literature classes, my creative writing classes, whatever. Um, But I'm also a theater minor. I take just under the requisite number of hours to get a theater minor, but I'm also in something like 10 plays. Mm -hmm. And in means you were an actor or you were just saying? I acted in 10 shows. I was the AD on a show. I stage managed a show. And of course everyone had to get like shop hours. So I would go help paint sets or distress. I love distressing costumes, just like (laughs) marking up shirts and ripping them. It's great. A lot of fun. I graduated a semester early and I was just shy of having a theater minor. I needed one credit hour. I decided I was going to stay as a part-time student for one more semester, finish up my minor. And I could have taken a one-hour costume class or I could have taken a three-hour directing class. <laughs> and I went to the woman who was then my playwriting professor and a movement for the stage professor. And I went to her and I said, if I take a costuming class, do I have to sew? And yes, she looked at me exactly <laughs> like you're looking at me now right. and said, duh, or something probably yeah, right, far right, more right, vulgar. Right, right. And I said, okay, I'm going to take this three-hour directing class. <laughs> and I went ahead and took a, like a theater history class. And a, I think I took scene design. So I ended up having like nine hours going to school part-time. And I fell in love with directing. It was stupid how fast it hit me. <laughs> like I didn't, I felt I was naturally, like I could see patterns in my head. I hear things, like when I read a script, I don't always see the stage, but I can absolutely hear voices <laughs> in my head. That's Joan of Arc here. But like it was, it was this really interesting thing where I finally found a thing that I was good at and passionate about. And again, it's that it's almost that support structure thing. Like obviously you're part of the creative process, but I don't need to be the guy on stage, right? I don't need a spotlight on my face. And so to have that community with the actors, to be able to sort of teach and lead and learn and work collaboratively, that really made me happy. So suddenly I was like, well, I know what my life is gonna be now. I'm just gonna go off to New York and be a director, like whatever. <laughs> um, so that that gets me to the end of college. Okay, um, um, I just wanna yeah. say, it. Um, I quite often hear stories that highlight a kind of serendipity. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, that you, you could have gone on without the extra credit right. and you could have taken, you know, in all kinds of ways, this could not have happened, right? Mm-hmm. But it did. I was getting ready to apply to PhD programs in English. Oh, wow. For the first wow. of two times. It happens again later in my life. But, but this was the first time and I just suddenly said, no, I don't need this. I don't want this. I what want you? to do the work. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So what did you do? So I ended up uh, moving back home just for a year, saved up some money. And while I was doing that, I applied for some internships and I ended up at the Oslo 
as an assistant stage manager, which was not exactly what I wanted to do, but I got to sit in on rehearsals. I got to watch professional directors work with professional actors. I got to take blocking notes. And, and, and what it taught me was that um, I loved everything about my job except for the job itself. I don't love the work of being a stage manager. <laughs> I, I did that for a year and then I met this director, her name was Pam Hunt, and she was a Chicago director who had come down for just like the, a, a guest artist gig. Like she really took time to get to know me, took an interest in me, asked me a lot of questions, and I said, well, I think I'm gonna go to like New York or Chicago or LA. She said, you'd love Chicago. She said, you would love everything about Chicago except the weather. She said, it's a great town for people starting out in theater. So I moved from Arcadia, Florida to Chicago, Illinois, <laughs> the third biggest city in the nation. But I ended up making really good friends with a woman who was an independent theater artist. She did a lot of self-produced work. She was a nanny and a massage therapist and a candle maker. And all that money she would funnel into renting spaces and hiring actors and putting on shows. And I ended up going to see a show that she was in and had, had produced and we ended up just deciding that we were gonna work together. We would both put up the money and she would act and I would direct. So we did three shows in this bootleg theater and we, we were in the living room of a manor house. We did a show in an art gallery, that was the third one. And we ended up, A, working really well together and we ended up making a profit on two of our shows. Wow. Two of the three shows in nine, and I'm this dumb, I'm 22 maybe at the time. <laughs> And here I am like, oh, this is easy. Yeah, right, right. Theater's easy. Yeah. What's all this complaining about? And of course, you know, I was also waiting tables and all that. Right, but it was, right. it just felt so... Yeah, you were yeah, working. I you was were working. making money. My and God. I was making money. I was making friends. Yes. I was doing art. I got a couple of terrible reviews, but people came to see the shows anyway. Mm -hmm. So who cares? Right? So it was great. And then again, Serendipity, my producing partner, had had a slip and fall on her fire escape long before I met her mm -hmm. and had sued her landlord. And about six months into our partnership, she says, well, I just got like this, you know, six figure settlement and I've always wanted to move to New York and I would love you to come with me. Wow. Right. So we go uh, from Chicago, we run a U-Haul and suddenly we're New York artists, right? <laughs> Living in Crown Heights, you know, whatever that entails. Uh, again, through people that I knew from Chicago, um, getting asked to work for this um, company called Love Creek Productions, which was kind of this semi-professional company, right? And I ended up getting a few directing gigs. I ended up, uh, within a year, getting um, asked to be one of about three associate artistic directors because wow. I'd worked with the director, Lee Wilhelm, um, and uh, he, he liked my work and said, well, so, so I ended up not only doing my own shows there, but also going in and watching the work of others and giving them notes at their final dress rehearsal or like being sitting in on their tech rehearsals. And, and is this a paid position? It is uh, stipended, yeah, <laughs> right? I, it's not, I'm not, I'm not, this is not my full-time job yeah, by yeah, any means. I'm still right. waiting an awful lot of tables, mom. Right. But, but yeah, um, it's, it's me getting like, $500 to put on this show, right? Or, or, or whatever. And it's, it's, you know, it's New York too. So what does $500 do? But, but yeah, I'm getting paid for my work and I have all these New York credits now. And I'm, I did not love New York. I had felt very at home in Chicago. I get to New York and it just doesn't feel as comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I'm there for about five years. And then I finally just said like, you know what? I've had enough. Michelle, uh, who, who is now my roommate, as well as my producing partner, she had decided that she was going to move back to Texas. And I say, well, if you're moving, I'm not going to stay, right? right so right. so I end up coming back to Florida 
and just very briefly crashing with my parents for a year while I fill out grad school applications. Because I say I've done, you know, you go off, this dumb kid goes to Chicago and then moves to New York and has some successes and has some failures and skins his knees, but learns things. And, and I think, I think people need to be beat up a little bit, right? In order to realize, you know, what the world is like. And I say, and and better to be beat up when you're young. Absolutely. Oh, I couldn't handle it now. Okay, so you have moved back to Florida, mm-hmm. right? You yes. have spent a year with your family, mm-hmm. and then what? In in the process of spending that year with my family, I uh, applied to grad schools for theater, and again, just sheer luck, right? One of the five grad schools that I have to apply to wants me to retake the GREs, uh, so I do, and I do fairly well in them. And I, and you know how they test like send your scores out or whatever. Right. So I get this pamphlet in the mail from a school I've never heard of in Virginia called Mary Baldwin College, and their program in Shakespeare and Renaissance literature and performance. And it's one of the first envelopes I get from a from a college. So I just you know like you keep it for a couple of days, and I didn't even really open it because the title of the program was so specific, yeah. right? And I and at this point, you are not thinking about this no, specifically. I've, I've got like a list because yeah, I've got a list of five schools I want to go to. Right. Um, and I know that I may or may not get into any of them, right. but but like this is what I'm trying. Right. right. Let me let me live my life universe. <laughs> and so I go into the kitchen with this envelope in my hand, and I'm standing over the garbage can about to throw it in. <laughs> and I say, you know, it wouldn't kill me to look at it. <laughs> so I open it and I pull it out, and there's this picture of this gorgeous wooden theater <laughs> on the on the very opening. And I start flipping through the pamphlet. And I convince myself as I'm reading, you know, if you can do Shakespeare, right, you can do difficult language, right, you can do combat, you can do clowning, you can do music, like what is not involved in putting on a Shakespeare production? So like, eh, I'll, I'll try. And I end up only applying to that school. And I can't tell you why. I, I make these oh weird God. decisions, right? I make these weird decisions where I'm like, I've got, I'm going to these five, you know, top 20 schools. And, and then I'm just like, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm good. I feel like I don't need I don't need wedding cake every day. I can just go to this one school, right? And I do, and I get in, and, and they offer me an assistantship, and, and I get there, and I absolutely fall in love with it. Now, I had, of course, as an English major and as a theater minor, and as someone who'd just gone through the American public education system, I'd encountered Shakespeare before. I'd seen Hamlet when I was two, apparently. <laughs> and I liked him in the way that English majors are sort of expected to like Shakespeare. Yes. Right? He's... He's great. He's great. the guy. Please note my air quotes. He is yes, great. Right, right, right. He is important. Yes. He is to be revered, yes, right? Yeah. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll do some comedy errors. I don't care. So I get to this grad school, and over the next three years, systematically, it happens very quickly, but it's a process, right? They break down everything I thought I knew about Shakespeare and convince me that this guy is not great for all the reasons that your English teacher told you he was. He is filthy and weird <laughs> and and like leaves loose ends left and right. But his language, like, I don't know, it's hard for me to put on, but I stopped looking up to Shakespeare and started loving it, yes. right? And I say it very carefully instead of him because he's dead, right? Like, Mm -hmm. he's super dead. He's not coming back. But he left this body of 38 or so plays and 100 sonnets and, like, whatever. Um, And I just really start to love what he did on paper. And the cool thing about this this program, which was attached to a theater company called the American Shakespeare Center, um, is that they 
do their best and there's and they will straight up tell you there are a million things we don't know about what happened in the London theater world 400 years ago right but to the best of their ability they look at theater architecture they look at playing conditions they look at all this stuff and try to recreate not Elizabethan theater but the feeling that an Elizabethan audience would have. They don't use theatrical lighting. Everything is done in a shared pool of light. So the audience can see the actors, obviously, but the actors can see the audience, right? Because they would have been done under sunlight, right? There's a big difference in Hamlet sort of looking at the heavens and going to be or not to be. Or if he goes up to the edge of the stage and looks at Lynn and says, to be or not to be. Wow. Right? And it really brings the audience in in this weird way that some people love and it makes some people uncomfortable. But the other thing about shared lighting is that other audience members can also see you. <laughs> and so you are now part of the performance, right? Um, the ASC, the American Shakespeare Center, has a big, a big thing about running time. You know, the chorus in Romeo and Juliet tells us it's two hours traffic, right? So if you go to see... And, and again, how, how accurate were they at telling time, right? But, but if you go and see Romeo and Juliet and it's a three-hour extravaganza, like someone's hoodwinked you. There's not three hours of story there. Get me in and get me. I like a tight two hours, right? Hamlet, yes. Hamlet, you can go three hours maybe. It's a long script. But um, they had a huge focus. And every Shakespeare company will tell you this. But they actually did it, and I've seen their process of how they do it, of making sure that every actor knew what he or she was saying and what it meant and why they were saying it every second. So if you get, like, Shakespeare, the language is a little difficult, right? And, and people have issues with that. But, but if you learn the rhetoric of the period, if you learn the syntax of the period, the vocabulary is very similar to our vocabulary. There are very few words that Shakespeare uses that we don't already know. Um, and so just making sure that these long twisty metaphors and things like that, like they, if they're legible to the actor, they will be legible to the audience, yes. right? So they really tried to, again, it wasn't like everyone was walking around in big ruffs and pumpkin pants. <laughs> we did that sometimes, but I've also worked on, you know, steampunk productions and 1920s productions and 1980s productions and it's fine. But, but, but having the experience of an active audience a quick plot-driven show without a lot of sets and props and smoke machines and circus bears, right? And and just making sure that the language is super legible, right? So I'm here for three years. And I actually... Oh, yes. And are you there as an acting? Mm -hmm. You're there as a direct... What are you there? I'm there as... It's interesting. So I go in and I. you can get two degrees there. One can get two degrees there. Uh, you got a two-year M-Lit a Master of Letters, which is very similar to an MA, but a little bit more focused on practice than academics, right? And once one completes the two-year program, then you can audition to stick around for a third year and earn an MFA. And I had gone in, and I was going to do directing, directing. And and I talked to this guy who I'm in school with. Guy Jeremiah is an actor who's already had an MFA from University of Washington. He had been around the block a few times and, and said, I think you're naturally good at directing just based on what little bit I've seen and what I would like for you to do and this is a colleague right but just like sitting me down in the corner and saying now Glenn right what I would like you to do is focus on something that you don't know as well right and see how that makes you a better director so I was there one could get an M lit 
in acting, directing, dramaturgy, or education. And then the MFA was only acting, directing, and dramaturgy. And I decided I'm going to go into dramaturgy, which is language, which is research, which is, again, that support structure, right? Yes. Uh, in, in America, a working dramaturg is often going to meet with directors or actors or designers, and they'll say, like, tell me about what a kitchen would look, look like in the 1950s, or I'm having a really hard time with this passage. Can you break down the language for me? Or... Um, I really want to do like a feminist or a Marxist or a queer or an eco-friendly critique of this play. Like, so it's very research-based, but you're still supporting like what the audience is going to see. Well, so again, we have the serendipity of mm-hmm. the person coming in and saying the thing mm-hmm. that, that changes your life, mm-hmm. right? And again, we have the theme of the support team. What I'm learning also talking to you is that I'm very suggestible. Like, you only have to come at me once with a good idea. And I'll say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, you, know, you know, I would have defined that differently. Okay. I would have said that you are a person who knows what is right for you when you hear it. Uh-huh. Maybe so. You know, you may not know it until it, until it is in your face. But when it's in your face, you actually know it mm-hmm. and run with that it. works i'll buy that you thank know. you thank you for, for being more <laughs> gracious to me than i sometimes am to myself um so i end up getting my m lit in dramaturgy and and falling in love and here we're gonna get a little hip deep in just how nerdy i am um falling in love with rhetoric mm. and dramatic rhetoric and and again with shakespeare shakespeare wrote 38 plot or 38 plays about two of them have original plots Everything else is stolen out of history books or Italian novellas or, you know, what have you. So, like, why do him? Why do we still care 400 years later? And it's the way he writes. Um, and it's not so much. It's, it's what he says, but also even more how he says it, right? So I start looking at the way different characters talk. I get really in the weeds about it. I, I start looking at three of his disabled characters, Richard III, Caliban, and Thersites, and how they are all viewed as less than the rest of society because of their physical deformity or their physical disability and how they in all in three very different ways use language to elevate their status or push down the status of those around them and that becomes the project of my thesis well i do all the coursework for my mfa and right around the time i'm thinking about well it's time to start applying for phd programs in english again right (laughs) the american shakespeare center has a beautiful building but at the time, they had shows going on 52 weeks a year. And they'd run like 19 titles a year. More than half of them Shakespeare. Um, a lot of Ben Johnson, Christopher Marlowe, contemporaries of Shakespeare, that kind of stuff. And then they have like a Christmas season because everyone wants to come see Tiny Tim at Christmas. So they also have a touring troupe that goes through, depending on the year, 25, 27 states over the course of five months. Wow. And just does shows from Bar Harbor, Maine, down to, they used to go down to the Florida Keys. I think now they, they go to like Daytona Beach as far south as they get over to Austin, Texas, and up to, like, Indiana. Wow. Right? And da, 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 da. And their touring troupe manager was resigning. <laughs> and I say, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> if I can avoid PhD work for, like, a little while. Right? So one thing sort of leads to another, and I never... I complete my coursework for the MFA, but I never write my thesis. Um, but what I do do is get hired on as the touring troupe manager right. for the American Shakespeare Center. And I spend three years touring with them, 11 actors in three bands, traveling over about a third, two thirds of the country, right? Um, I get to do a lot of education work because there's a strong education component. So we would offer like 15 to 18 different workshops a year. Wow. And I would lead about half of them and I was in charge of training and assigning the other. So it's it's one of those things, uh, if you've ever worked for a nonprofit, you know that your, your job description gets a little messy. Once the tour is booked, I'm in every rehearsal. I'm 
uh, liaising with artistic departments. I'm contacting this college and this community center and saying like, okay, here's what we need. What can you offer? Or like all this stuff. I'm managing the actors. I'm watching the shows to make sure that they are the quality we want them to be. Um, I'm handling petty cash. I'm making travel itineraries. I'm leading the education arm. It's all this stuff and it's intense. And I won't say I got any younger doing it, but it is so much fun, right? Because you're, again, you're trapped in this very small world of 11 people plus yourself traveling in three vans and you see these people every single day even every on a day single off. minute yeah exactly <laughs> now i was really lucky because as the tour manager and therefore as someone who was often carrying thousands of dollars of cash in my backpack i always had a single hotel room Ha-ha. yes <laughs> take that rest <laughs> of the troop um so i i would i would get to go home and just sort of like Ugh, yeah, right? Right, right but i also was making schedules and counting money while they were off getting barbecue and sitting in hot tub so like the fair's fair right um but i do that for three years And then just as I'm starting to be like, this has been great. I wonder what's next. ASC asks me if I will move to the resident troupe. Okay, sure. So now I'm doing very similar work, way less education, but also way less travel, way less counting of money. I'm still sitting in on rehearsals. I'm still maintaining shows. I'm still talking to the director all the time, right? I I do that for a year and it's good, but it's not exactly what I want. I did kind of miss the rush. I kind of, I really missed teaching. So, oh, one good thing that happened that year, though, is I get my MFA finally. The ASC does this really cool thing called uh, the Renaissance season. One thing we know about Shakespeare is that they didn't have, like, these four-month-long rehearsal processes, or even four-week-long rehearsal processes. (laughs) They would have 40 to 60 titles in their repertory at all times. Wow. And you would just go to the theater any day but Sunday, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and they would hang like a, a black flag if they were doing a tragedy or a red flag if they were doing a comedy. <laughs> and like you would just go and it wouldn't be like you could see cats for the, like the next 17 years. They would be doing different shows all the time, right? So during the Renaissance season, um, the actors replicate those conditions. They show up at rehearsal off book. They have learned their, um, their lines already from sides rather than from full scripts. And they put up a show in about 40 hours of rehearsal time. Wow. Yeah. Sometimes as short as two days, sometimes like six hour chunks spread out over more days. But, um, so yeah, that happened. And, and I was responsible that year for editing the scripts for, I I edited three of the five scripts that they did and, um, loved it. And so I kind of wrote my thesis and kind of, I in fact wrote my thesis, my MFA thesis on the process of like cutting the script also being the only sort of like management in the room because there's no formal director during the Renaissance season. There was, there was no such thing as a director until the 19th century, right? So the actors direct the shows themselves, wow. right? And it usually happens that the person with the biggest role gets the biggest voice, right? So they can say, I want you to stand there. But, but I was sort of there as the person who had cut the script and as the person who had an outside eye. Um, and then, because they learn the show so quickly, their line recall is sometimes approximate. <laughs> so I would prompt the shows. I would sit in like this dark corner with a little light and, and we know that early modern playhouses had a prompter. Um, and I would sit there and I would read along in the script and every so often someone would say, Privy, and I would read their line and they would pick it up and it was great. And a couple of the shows actually had little bits where like characters, please note my air quotes again, forgot their lines and needed, <laughs> needed. So it was like this really cool thing. So as someone who was there for the cutting of the script, the rehearsal process, and watching and maintaining and assisting the performance, um, what was that like, right? And so that was that ended up being my so I finally got my terminal degree on the on the seven year plan. Um, but there I have it. Um, 
so yeah, I did that for a while, and I just but I left I left the ASC uh, on really good terms. I, I have worked for them just a little freelance gigs since then, but I just wanted something different. And it so happened that a friend of mine that had been on tour with me for three years had just gotten hired as a full-time uh, faculty member at Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia. And uh, even though they had hired her full-time and really wanted her to come work for them, she was still a contracted actor at the ASC, so they needed an adjunct for, uh, for, for, for the semester. So I went there and taught an acting class. I taught an intro to the, like in the theater appreciation class and I directed Twelfth Night with college age actors which was uh-huh. a lot of fun. I'm at Randolph in Virginia for a semester just just one semester but I have a great time and uh, decide that I really love this teaching thing. I taught like high school English before mm-hmm. um, and not loved it and not been particularly good at it right but having been around the world a little bit since then I don't know I feel like I just had different expectations and different things I cared about. And when I got excited about something, I had proven a little better at sharing why. Mm -hmm. Oh no, this is really cool. You don't know how cool rhetoric is. Let me prove it to (laughs) you. Um, But so I do do that for for a semester. And then I decide, I want, I think I want, I I tell myself, I think I want to teach college full time, right? What's a little interesting though, is I've been so focused in my education and, and before I'd gone back to get my graduate degrees, I've been so focused on the performance aspect of things. Like I haven't done a lot of conferences. I haven't delivered or written a lot of papers. I've adjuncted Randolph for one semester and I'd been sort of like a teaching assistant in one class at my grad school, but I don't have like this huge credential. So it, I don't know if you know the state of uh, higher education right now, but there's like this huge move to like hire adjuncts rather than um, full-time teachers. And, and it's, it's, it's controversial in yeah. the academy. But so what I'm finding is that there aren't just a lot of jobs there. And the jobs that I do want, I'm competing with people who just decide they want to yeah. do this. So I come back uh, to Florida. Uh, my dad is, is gone now. I have a special needs brother. My mom is lovely and strong and stays busy all the time, but she's getting up there. home now, and I decide if I'm going to be here, I need to do something interesting with my life. So I decided I'm going to do a meetup group just for fun, right? Just to get out of the house every every couple weeks. And what am I good at? Well, I'm really good at explaining why Shakespeare isn't boring, right? Uh-huh. Why he's great, but not because of the reasons you think he's great. Right. So I decide I make this meetup group and it's still active uh, on, on, on meetup called Shakespeare is fun, period. And, uh, and I'm thinking this will be something, you know, it's kind of goofy. It'll get me out of it. Maybe three people will show up and we'll sit around and be nerds at a coffee shop or whatever. The first meeting, like 22, 23 people show up. And it's, we don't get that kind of turnout every week, but we've been active for over a year now, and we have like a core of probably like 12 people that not all of them come all the time, but like we get a good group of them, and like different people will come in and out, and like some, we get snowbirds during some seasons. And so through that, I meet a, a local artist named Ann Morrison, <laughs> who runs the Sarasola Festival. And she comes, I think it's the second or third meetup she shows up, we're talking about Hamlet. And she sort of grabs my elbow after the show and she says, I never knew Hamlet was so funny. Right? <laughs> but it is, like it's, of course it's tragic and of course it's philosophical and it's very long, but it's, it's funny, right? Like Hamlet's a comedian and there's goofball stuff going on all through it. And I say, yeah, no, that's kind of my thing is like, we, we have these preconceived notions about Shakespeare and like blah, blah, blah. And she's like, well, what I want you to do, do you know who Anna Russell is? And I say, I don't know, I don't. And she says, well, she was, and she tells me who Anna Russell is. Long story short, if you don't know, um, she was a, an opera singer, like a trained opera singer, but not quite good enough to be 
a professional opera singer. So she becomes a singing comedian and she goes around and like does like sort of mock one woman Gilbert and Sullivan operatas <laughs> and things like that. And she's got this, I don't know, like this 27 minute bit where all she does is summarize the ring of the Nibelung. <laughs> but it's hilarious, right? Because that too is a ridiculous is, piece of art. It's right. great, but it's it's stupid. Like the right. plot is dumb, right? And she's leaning into like all the inconsistencies and all the weirdness. And Annie had seen in the way I talk about Hamlet, like that same sort of like, you're very strange, but I get what you're trying to do and I appreciate it sort of love, right? So she says, "What I, I, I run this local play festival, like this solo play festival, and I really want you to do like an Anna Russell, uh, excuse, yeah, an Anna Russell sort of uh, uh, thing about Shakespeare. Right. I say, okay, great. And we go have wine and it's lovely. And then I sit on that idea for like three months and I'm like, I can't do this. Like, I, 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 it's not that I say I can't do it. It's that I start it five times and I'm never happy with it. So I'll write like a page and be like, eh, that's not quite what I want to do. Right, and that's not what we'll And then what I will, what suddenly hits me is, Glenn, you were on tour. You had a very, very strange job for three years, traveling with these actors all over the country, New York City and Clarksville, Texas, right? Like red state, blue state, sophisticated people and not sophisticated people. And you've seen a big chunk of America and you have spent a long time neck deep in something that a lot of people care about or say they care about and yet get really nervous about, right? Why not make that your framing device? Why not get into that? So then I write uh, an hour long show in about two weeks. I met Mitch McConnell on the road and like that, that goes in, no, I don't have time for it. So I throw Mitch McConnell out. Very satisfying to throw Mitch McConnell out. Right? Um, but, but all this stuff of, of not only what life was like on the road and these incredible, weird, uh, fun, often, or terrible, often people that I worked with, right? But also what I learned watching Midsummer Night's Dream 80 times, right? <laughs> what I learned working with a play called Tis Pity, She's a Whore that not a lot of people know about, but is really weird, right? Like what, so it's, um, I, I write the script and I send it to Anna. I was like, yeah, it took me forever to get this to you. I'm so sorry. I don't know how good it is. Ugh. And she says, this is great. We're going to do this at the Sarah. So I am actually going to be at the Sarah Solo Festival with my one-man show, Asides, or My Life with Will, um, on January 26th, I think. You can look on the website on www.sarasolo.com. Um, but yeah, that's so that is going to be kind of everything <laughs> everything I know about Shakespeare and life right it's going to be very fabulous um but yeah so it's 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 my um my journey through these nine plays that we worked on on the road and my journey across America so yeah that's in actual fact I think it is your journey from the beginning of your life I I I'm not the world's greatest actor. I will I will preface it with that. But I love teaching acting. You know, not every coach is a great player, right? I love teaching acting. But also through this meetup group, um, I met a, a, a faculty member at Ringling, uh, someone in the creative writing department, who asked me to come in and do like a two-hour lecture on dramatic rhetoric, which, as we know, is kind of my bread and butter. I, I love nothing more, by the way. If, if I could do anything, it would be to look at a really 
dense script. Could be Shakespeare, could be Aeschylus, could be Tom Stoppard, I don't care. But look at a really dense script and then sit down with an actor who is playing a role in that script and just say, okay, why do you repeat this word so many times? What does this sentence mean? What do you want here? And just like going through it, like that, I love it. Um, it's also directing. It is, it is so directing. It is. and I, and it, But it's the fun parts of directing. It's also human connection. Well, it's the way. fun parts for you. It's exactly. Right. But yes. that's right. It's a specific um, skill, <laughs> mm-hmm. directing skill, right? Yes, that's absolutely. Great. Yeah, it's great. And it's a thing I've noticed because I've become a little fussy about the theater I like over the years. I have no patience at all for actors who are emotionally like very present and open and available, but they don't know what they're talking about, right? And so they paint like this beautiful word picture, this wall of like sad or this wall of joyful. And and yet at some point, everyone is going to tune out, yeah. right? And they're still gonna say like, oh, that was brilliant because in some ways it was. And because they don't, there was something boring about it, but they can't, put their finger on what the boring thing was. Right. So like I'm very interested in actors knowing what they're talking about. So yes. And but a lot of directors are gonna not worry about that. Or not even they're, see it. Right. They're gonna cut those lines. They're not gonna see it. Oh this doesn't make sense, let's get rid of it. Or this doesn't make sense, so say it fast. Or this doesn't make sense, so let's have pyrotechnics going on in the background. And I've gotten very about that kind of yeah, theater. Yeah. I, I end up doing this uh two hour workshop on dramatic rhetoric and then over the course of that semester Every full-time faculty member in the creative writing department asked me to come in and do like a different, like, can you do a thing on Shakespeare soliloquies and I want songs in Broadway show? Yes, I can talk about Shakespeare soliloquies and I want songs. Um, and I come into another class and talk about like the transactional nature of language, how like anytime anyone talks to anyone else, they want a thing. You know, sometimes it's like, I want a coffee. Great. I want $2. And that's a really easy exchange, right? But sometimes it's, I want to be loved or I want to borrow $20,000 or I need the car this weekend. And that gets harder. And so how do we negotiate that? Or I want to feel good about myself. I want to feel good about me. I want you to like me, right? right? It can be as simple as that. I want to be heard, right? Or even I want to like me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, that also as well, too. Um, So that, so I end up, and and over the course of that semester, the people at Wrangling who've been very good to me uh, invite me, someone who is really not a creative writer, but who is really good at taking black scribbles on a white page and thinking about how they are an event, right? They invite me to come in and do a couple of classes. And so now one of my 6,000 jobs, I'm exaggerating slightly, is I I teach uh, creative writing at Wrangling College and I love it. I have this last question, mm-hmm. and it is, having spent a life, and it's, it's hard to categorize you, as you certainly know, but it's all either performing or helping performance, mm-hmm. you know? W- would you say something about what that feels like, or you think about it, or it means to you? Yeah, maybe. I, I grew up in a house as I started this interview, I grew up in a house where story was valuable, right? Not only, hey, Glenn, you should read this book, but, hey, Glenn, how was your day? Oh, no, that's not good enough, right? Um, And, and, well, one thing that Annie says, Ann Morrison and and Blake Walton, her producing partner, say, everyone has a story in them. Everyone has a one-act play in them or a one-person show in them, right? So, and one of the things I love about your your series of interviews is that you're finding people who are a little like, we're all a little broken, we're all a little weird, you know, we've all had these messy lives. And, and you're saying like, what makes you you, 
Yeah. Right? And so I think there's immense value in that. And there's beauty in that. And there's nobility in that. Um, if I can take someone or if I can help someone who is shy or who doesn't feel creative or who's never been like the smartest kid in the class, right? And say, what kind of art do you want to make? Why do you want to make it? All right, good. Show me. Yeah. Okay, that was almost right. Like, what could you do to make this better? And just molding that, working with that is, I think, I don't know. Like, again, it's not it's not going to make me a million dollars. It's not going to get my face on billboards. But there's a there's a nobility in that. There's like a, I feel good doing it. I feel like it's useful. That is a perfect place to stop. Thank you so much, You're Glenn. very welcome. Thank you. Being of support. When I am being of support, I feel good about it. I feel that it is noble. <laughs> well, when you hear somebody saying that, you know you are listening to someone who is very much who he is, who is doing what fits him, who has discovered and is pursuing what is essential to him, what makes him feel good. And of course, it's my hope that when you listen to Glenn, you're asking yourself, is this how I feel about my life? Am I doing the thing that makes me feel good about myself? Do I feel noble? Am I proud of my contribution to the world? Is the work I'm doing the work that fits me, that, that is correct for me? Well, if, if, if all of that is true for you, I am delighted for you. If it is not true for you, however, please know that it may not be too late to recover, to rediscover, to uncover things about you that make you feel that way about yourself. And as always, I hope that you got something from this show that you can use. You see, I'm getting older. My hair is turning gray. Oh, you see my face and figure. No, I will not go gentle into that good night. I won't go with a whimper. I am going with a bang. Life's a song I keep on singing, not a tune that I once sang. I just keep returning like some Let someone else get on Well, I, I won't be relegated Or leave without a fight No, I will not go gentle Into that good night See?